0: Did fantastic. Well, hey, good morning, everybody. Good morning. There we go. Love some energy. Welcome to Covenant Church. I want to extend a big welcome to all of our visitors, guests, members, attenders, whoever you are. Everyone in the sanctuary, I welcome you. I'm glad you're here, and I hope that you feel a part of this church community. Well, my name is Ben Espinoza. I serve on staff here at Covenant Church. It's my privilege here to be preaching once again, and. I want to continue my message from last week, Uh, so let me recap a little bit. Uh, Last week's message was on Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40, where Jesus tells a bunch of Pharisees and Sadducees about the two greatest commandments to love God wholeheartedly and to love your neighbors as yourselves. We talked a little bit about the context of that and how the heart is really what Jesus is going after. And in order to really show how our heart for God as individuals and as a church, in order to show it, we preach the gospel and we cultivate worship. And those two points, preaching the gospel and cultivate worship, cultivating worship are just two out of the four core values we espouse here at Covenant Church. And as I said, as I mentioned in the end, it all begins with your transformed heart. You have to make the change as an individual and then we can make a change as a church. And today, I want to look at a a very similar but different passage. It's in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. I ask that you turn with me there. Uh, Let me say that that last week, uh, I preached through a similar passage in Matthew, a little different, uh, dealing with the two greatest commandments. But this is most likely a different episode, um, not just a different interpretation of the same episode. Before I get into the text, I want to say, A few words about one of my favorite movies of all time. It's called Frozen. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to subject any more people to Frozen or Elsa or Olaf or anything, okay? Because I'm merciful. I'm not going to subject any parents to that anymore. No, I want to say a few words about a movie I really dig called Guardians of the Galaxy, okay? It's It's a movie about how a bunch of greedy outlaws end up saving the universe from destruction, it's the plot of any very fantastic sci-fi film. And the character development is amazing because these characters all start out as being super selfish, greedy, thieves, murderers, bounty hunters, whatever. And they end up just saving the universe, saving the galaxy from all evil. And there's a moment in the film where these, where these guardians are fending off this army of aliens who are trying to take this really valuable object for them, okay? And the main character, Peter Quill also known as Star-Lord, he basically says, yeah, the fate of the galaxy, it's in our hands right now. We've got to do something about it. And this guy named Rocket, who's a raccoon, I'm sorry, this is, this is really a good film, okay? I know it sounds kind of crazy, but it's a great film. Uh, the guy named Rocket Raccoon, he says, why would you want to save the galaxy? And then Peter Quill says, because I'm one of the idiots that lives in it. And eventually, they're compelled to join together to save the galaxy and the universe, and they all live happily ever after. And what Star-Lord Peter Quill recognized is that there's a responsibility that we all have to love our neighbors as ourselves. And if someone like Quill, who's super greedy, super selfish, can understand that, how much more could the body of Christ understand that? As people who have a new heart, transformed by Christ, I want to ask this question with you today. What does it look like for our church to love all people as ourselves? Please look with me at Luke chapter 10 verses 25 through 37. It says this, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, The one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, Go and do likewise. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you'll illuminate our minds and our eyes and most of all our hearts to what you want us to hear from your word today, Lord. I pray that The words that I speak will be bold, that they'll be in line with your word, Lord, and that you will use the word spoken today, your word, to transform our hearts and minds so they conform more and more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Now before I get into detail about this really, really famous story, I want to say a couple words about Luke's gospel, okay? Okay. As some of you, most, most of you probably know, Luke was a doctor, so he was very meticulous with his work. And at the beginning of, this, of his gospel, he says he's writing to a dude named Theophilus. That's an awesome name. Name your kid that. Okay? Uh, and in Greek, Theophilus literally means lover of God. And what he says to Theophilus is this. He says, I've gone to great lengths to ensure that I've written the most accurate factual gospel around. So his goal was to create a factual testimony of Jesus Christ. And some historians have even said that the Gospel of Luke is one of the most accurate pieces of history in history. So other than being incredibly accurate, Luke demonstrates in his Gospel a lot of compassion. He shows Jesus' compassion toward the outcasts of society and the downtrodden. He was a wealthy great Greek doctor... But in spite of that, he still had a heart for people who weren't on the upper crust of society, which was unusual for a culture that was even more socioeconomically segregated than our own. And you see this emphasis time and time again in Luke's gospel, but nowhere in Luke's gospel is his own attention to the poor and downtrodden most evident than in our passage of scripture, the famous parable of the Good Samaritan. So in this passage, we see another teacher of the law trying to, to understand Jesus' message. And, and this episode doesn't continue any sort of series of events or anything like that. It's kind of a, an isolated incident. So this teacher is, of the law is curious about what it takes to inherit eternal life. Now, if Jesus is who he says he is, he must have the right answer, this teacher probably thought. And notice that the teacher of the law calls Jesus Jesus. Teacher showing he has some respect for Jesus's place, his knowledge of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. And there's and this teacher of the law, who was most likely a scholar in his own right, and he's trying to test Jesus, and not in any sort of school teacher kind of way, okay? He's looking to trap Jesus, kind of incriminate him, even though he may want to understand more of the nuances of what Jesus is going for. So Jesus's response to the teacher's inquiry is interesting. He doesn't say, well, here's the right answer. He doesn't say, look, dude, you should know this. You're a teacher of the law. No, what does he say? He says, well, what does it say in the law? How do you read it? And when Jesus asks this, he's demonstrating his power, his status as a great teacher He's facilitating the learning going on in the Pharisee's mind. And this leads me to think that since Jesus can look so far into a man's heart, he probably saw a spark of righteousness, some genuine curiosity about who he was. And he's willing to indulge this teacher's curiosity, even if the teacher's motives are not pure. And the teacher of the law He answers him by saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, as I mentioned last week, that that piece about loving the Lord your God with all your heart and everything, that quote derives from Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6. I won't go into detail about that since we talked about it last week. But in the second part of the verse, the teacher of the law was quoting a verse from Leviticus, which is like everybody's favorite book, right? Yeah, there we go crickets. He quotes Leviticus chapter 17 verse 18, and it says this, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Together, those two quotes from Deuteronomy and from Leviticus, those constituted what was known back day as the great commandment. So for this teacher of the law to answer the specific way wasn't anything profound or miraculous or insightful it was pretty basic right but jesus's response is simple as well do this and you'll have life it's pretty straightforward teaching how do you achieve eternal life you love god with your whole heart and as a result you will love your neighbor as yourself the commandment is to have faith and then manifest it through loving your neighbor If you love God, you will love your neighbor as yourself. And if you love your neighbor as yourself, chances are you love God with your whole heart. But this is where the episode takes kind of a strange turn. This teacher has this super basic conversation with Jesus, but he's been enlightened. But the teacher decides to ask another question of Jesus, something that gives some insight or a clue into what is in his heart. He asks, But who is my neighbor? And Luke says the reason that he asked this is because he's trying to justify himself. And when the text says that the teacher of the law is trying to justify himself, he's trying to, to justify his own understanding of what the law says. You see, back then, there was a tradition among rabbis that, that was to teach that, yes, in order to be a true follower of Yahweh, the living God, you must love your neighbor as yourself. Except loving your neighbor didn't include loving the sinners or the unclean. And this idea led to the practice of some religious people to think that they were superior to those who were unclean. They thought what they could do is live in their small community and not have to engage anybody outside of it, the sinners. The law of the Old Testament of the Hebrew Bible exhorted the Jews to keep pure, not to touch things that were dead or could lead to death, They needed to stay clear of unclean things, especially unclean people. So what this teacher is basically saying is, come on, you're not actually suggesting that a sinner is my neighbor and that I have to love the sinner as myself. And this practice of avoiding unclean things probably led him to have some prejudice against people who were sinners or unclean. And this leads Jesus to telling the story of the good Samaritan. Now, when we read through this story, it kind of lacks the punch that it would have had in Jesus' day, okay? You see, the Jews and the Samaritans were natural-born enemies, all right? This wasn't a Ohio State-Michigan rivalry. This wasn't like a Democrat-Republican rivalry. This was God loves me not you, have a nice day kind of rivalry, all right? It was, we are the chosen people, you are not, we don't ever want to see you. It was that kind of rivalry, okay? And, and just to give you a bit of history, the Samaritans were of, of mixed blood ancestry, okay? They were half Jewish and half, you know, pagan. They were from the surrounding areas around, around Jerusalem. They worshiped the same God, Yahweh. However, they only believed that the first five books of the Hebrew Bible or the Torah were legitimate. And the biggest thing that separated the Samaritans from the Jews was the fact that they believed that the the mount that Abraham tried to sacrifice Isaac on back in Genesis was Mount Gerizim, not Mount Zion as the Jews believed. So the Jews ended up building their, their temple on Mount Zion, the Samaritans building their temple on Mount Gerizim, and as a result, Time and again, the Jews and the Samaritans went their separate ways, and the Samaritans developed their own practices and beliefs that deviated from mainstream Judaism. Now, for Jews, the Samaritans were second-class citizens. You you get some of this in the Gospels, okay? Think about the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. Talking to a Samaritan woman literally wasn't kosher back in those days for a Jewish man. Remember, the disciples were like, why would you go through Samaritan country, dude, you're nuts, because the Jews would rather walk around Samaritan territory, even though it would take longer than just suck it up and go straight through it. And you even see in Luke 9, you see Jesus and the disciples going forward into Samaritan country, trying to preach the good news, and they basically get the cold shoulder shoulder from the Samaritans. Samaritans are just like, "This, this, this Jesus guy is a Jew, I don't want anything to do with him. So that's the kind of context we have here. There's all sorts of cultural animosity between Jews and Samaritans. Now with that background established, we can move on to the parable here. It says, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Okay? What you got to understand here is that this road from Jerusalem to Jericho, this wasn't the yellow brick road, okay? This was, it wasn't Dorothy and the Carly Lions skipping along singing songs, okay? This wasn't like that main patch of, uh, of BG that goes through Main Street, okay? This was probably one of the most sketchy and dangerous places in the ancient world. In fact, it was called the Bloody Pass, all right? Because all the thieves would come out and just prounce and, and, and kill and rob uh, unsuspecting bystanders. The way the road meandered and curved made it so easy for robbers to come attack and steal from from people. And Jesus goes on to say that a priest was walking down the same road. He saw this man. He passed by on the other side. And a Levite when he came to the place, he saw him and passed by on the other side, too. So you all know that the priests and the Levites, they're some pretty holy dudes, all right? they were highly esteemed among the common people. They were like this higher plane of spiritual uh, existence above the regular common man. And as I mentioned before, the priests and the Levites held so tightly to the law, so they were so concerned with remaining ritually pure, or else they would forfeit their status as holy men. Now, some commentators, what they'll do is they'll say that maybe these holy men, in an effort to probably remain ritually pure, thought this man was dead, because after all, the text does say that he was half dead. Because the man was probably dead, they probably didn't want to go too close with him. So that, and, and, and if they did, they would contaminate themselves, and they would forfeit their status as holy men. But the interpretation isn't right, because the priest and the Levite, as it says, were traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, and their duties at the temple were done. So they didn't have to necessarily follow the law. Therefore, they didn't have to worry about being ritually unclean. Now, other commentators will say that these guys probably saw this half-dead guy and thought, wow, these thieves must be close by. i got to get myself out of here, lest I suffer the same fate as this guy. But what Jesus is really getting at here is that there's a man on the side of the road. He's bloody. He's bruised. He's beaten. He's been robbed. He's been harassed, and the holiest of men don't even bother to check and see if he's alive or not. In other words, they don't love their neighbors as themselves, as it's said so clearly in Leviticus. And you see this motif all throughout the Gospels, okay? Jesus is trying to upset established human order. The first will be last. The last will be first. You must become like a child to become part of the kingdom of heaven. And the people that you think are the most holy, who hold to the law, to a T, literally, are actually the furthest away from God. Now, I can imagine Jesus is telling the story, and this teacher of the law is like, yeah, those, those guys were just a bunch of huge jerks, Jesus. I agree with you. But what Jesus says is even more scandalous. What he goes on to say is this. He says, but a Samaritan. Remember those guys? Those, those guys who were despised by the Jews who were half-breeds, who were unclean, who, was the, who were the, the natural-born enemies of the Jews? It says the Samaritan, as he traveled, he came to where the man was. He saw him. He had compassion on him. He poured oil and wine on his wounds, took him to the innkeeper, and gave him two denarii and said, put everything else on my tab. And two denarii was probably about two months' worth of uh, hotel expenses. So think about that in your minds. It's close to like, I don't even know, like $6,000 right there. And he says, I don't care what you have to do. Put it all on my tab. Just take care of the man. Now what's interesting is that the Samaritan who was unholy, who was unclean, who was impure, who wasn't a true follower of Yahweh by cultural standards, was the one who walked up to the supposedly dead man and cared for him. Now, the crazy thing here is that this Samaritan had the same first five books of the Hebrew Bible as his teacher of the law. He probably wasn't some scholar or anything, but he knew that it was his responsibility as a follower of Yahweh to take compassion on this person and love his neighbor as himself. I think there's two points to be made here. Number one, I think it's the Samaritan, the person of lesser status, rather than the teacher himself that actually follows the heart of the law by doing for someone else what he only would wish someone would do for him. And number two, loving your neighbor leads you to some pretty uncomfortable places. I want you to take a moment. I want you to close your eyes, okay? I want you to think about the person that you love the most and can't live without. It could be your wife, your husband, son or daughter, your parents, if you're really shallow, your TV... Now I want you to think about the person that you can't stand at all. A coworker, a neighbor, someone with a different political or religious viewpoint than you. Someone who looks different than you. Someone who's committed horrible things. Now open your eyes. Who is your neighbor? The person you love, the person you hate, and everyone in between. Now notice that when Jesus asks this teacher, which of the three do you think was a neighbor to the man uh, who fell into the hands of the robbers? The teacher responds, the one who had mercy on him, he can't even bring himself to acknowledge that his sworn ethnic and religious enemy followed the law better than he did. He couldn't just say, why the Samaritan, of course. He just calls him that guy. And when we read this passage, we interpret it in our gut, in our hearts. We say, yeah, this is about helping people. This is about helping people who need it. And you're absolutely right, okay? Christians need to help out everybody indiscriminately. And Jesus says in another uh, uh, point in the Gospels, he says, give to all who ask. But I think the broader point here is that your neighbor, the one you need to look out for, the one that you need to care for, is everybody. Now, what does that have to do with the heart? I think in our old hearts, before we've come to know Jesus, we sometimes harbor a kind of dislike toward people for what they've done or some sort of prejudice or whatever. But with our new hearts, we're to have love for all people. And Jesus himself says in another place in the Gospels that people know that we are his disciples if we have love for one another. And you see this all throughout the New Testament, but nowhere is it more evident in the book of 1 John, okay? We like to read Paul. Paul's, you know, logical. He's a good theologian. He tells us how to do church. He doesn't really get in our faces. Jesus is good. He can be comforting. He can be kind. He gets in the faces of people that aren't like you. But then you read 1 John, and it's a really, really uncomfortable book. Let me read you a couple passages. In 1 John 3, it says this, If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. He goes on to say, And this is his command, God's command, to believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. He goes on to say that whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And in the same chapter, chapter 5, John says, whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. For whoever does not love their neighbor or their brother or their sister, whom they have seen, cannot possibly love God, whom they have not seen. How can you know that there's a new heart within you? It's manifest in the way that you treat other people and the way that you obey God and keep his commandments. As a New Testament people, we're called to a higher standard, no excuses. The question here is, can you love the man that's been beaten and broken down on the side of the road? And can you love somebody who has been your sworn enemy since birth? More importantly, as a church, how can we show our love for one another and for our neighbors? How can we let our corporate heart show this? I think it's through a couple things, but I think the first way we do this is through creating community. We share life together, okay? We connect with all people. We welcome them into our community. The church should be the place where people can come and see how God wants to bring about change in this broken world. The church should be the place where people who have come, who come, who are broken, can find healing and peace. The church should be the place where people can come to see the ideal of where all people from every race, every single background, every socioeconomic status come together from all walks of life to worship Jesus Christ, the King of the universe. We study, we pray, we worship, we share life together, we care for each other. There's a world out there that wishes they had this kind of community to care for them. But right here, right now, this, the church community, has the only real power to transform people's hearts and minds and heal the brokenness of this world. Speaking of the Good Samaritan parable, Martin Luther King Jr. said this in one of his great many speeches. He said this about the priest and the Levite specifically. He said, first the question that the priest asked. The first question the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But then the Good Samaritan came by and reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? And in Christian community, we ask the same question. How can I care for my brother or my sister and put their needs Above my own, and this leads to the last of our core values here at Covenant Church. How do we show our love for our neighbors by living on mission? Now, one of a lot of us say, "Live on mission." We're not putting forth some new, bold, or innovative idea. I think when some of us hear "living on mission," we hear, "Well, I got to get some non-Christian friends and uh, worm my way into their lives, and hopefully, once I've gained their trust, uh, I spring the gospel on them." Okay. That's so not what we mean. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, I'm sorry, okay? Because that's how a lot of Christians are. I apologize to you for that. To live on mission means to go about your day, honoring, glorifying God through your good deeds and through your actions, letting others see that being a Christ follower is the most exciting, scary, hopeful, and adventurous, but the best way that you could live your life here on earth. So, you're doing your thing. You're living life and you seek to bless all people as much as you can. You love people. You give generously to, know, uh, to, uh, to those in need. And the crazy thing is that people are not a means to an end. Why do you live life on mission? Because it's our responsibility to let our love for God show to everyone we encounter. If somebody gets saved because of your testimony, great. If they don't, you still have to love and care about them because that's what Jesus commanded us to do. Look back at that passage in Luke. Notice how the good Samaritan simply says to the innkeeper, take care of him no matter what the cost. He leaves it at that. He has no idea who this man is, what his background is. He could have been a murderer. He could have been a Jew. He could have been any number of things. And yet he decides to help him out, indiscriminately, loving his neighbor as himself. We participate in the redemption of the earth with Jesus Christ by doing things that reflect the beauty of Jesus. We engage in the life of our local communities. We give generously to help those in need. We foster and adopt children into our families. These are things that Jesus' people do. And if our hearts are truly new, then we'll be doing things like this. I want to show you a pretty cool infographic right here, okay? Uh, last week, I, I preached on preaching the gospel and uh, cultivating worship. I want to make sure I get my circle right, Pete Townsend style. So <laughs> when you preach the gospel, what does it mean? It means that you're, you share abundantly what Jesus Christ has done for you, that he came, died, and rose again so that we could all have life. And as a result, Jesus is trying to redeem all of this creation back to where it was and restore everybody back to fellowship with God. We share how Jesus Christ touches every area of our lives and wants to know us personally. And that leads us to cultivating worship, okay? When we know the gospel, it leads us to worship God and to thank Him for all the great things that He's done for us. We adore Him. We love Him. And as a result, we share it with other people. We create community. We come together. We find other people that love Jesus as much as we do. What do we do? We care for one another. We love for one another. We share our stories with one another. And as a result, this community that we have, we can't help but live on mission. We can't help but do things that help other people. We can't help but share the love of Jesus Christ with other people. We can't help but do good deeds, loving our neighbors as ourselves, adopting uh, kids from foster care, and doing all sorts of great things. And through doing that, what does it lead us to? It leads us back to preaching the gospel, the good news that Jesus came, died, rose again, and he's trying to redeem all things back to himself. I said it last week, and it's kind of hokey and it's kind of cheesy, but I think it's pretty cool. Resolution is only one letter away from revolution. It all starts with something very small, because that's how God does it. God sent His Son, the divine being, in the form of a baby and a trough and a manger at night. And look what it's done for the entire earth. Great movements of God start very, very small. Think about what it would look like if we follow those four core values here at Covenant. Think of what our community would look like. But here's where it all starts, okay? It all begins with your transformed heart, your new heart, a heart that loves God with everything, that loves God with all your mind, all your strength, all your soul, a heart that loves your neighbor as yourself, and wants to do good for all people. It all begins with your new heart. We must love our neighbors as ourselves. And like Jesus said, and I think it's a great way um, for us to think about this, he says, just go and do likewise. So Let's go do likewise. Let's go love our neighbors as ourselves. Let's let our heart for God, our heart for others show in everything that we do. Please stand with me as we pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for the gift of your love, the gift of grace, the gift of hope, Lord. Thank you for showing us the way in Jesus Christ, Lord. And I pray that you'll help us to be courageous and bold and truthful, living our lives on mission, preaching your word, worshiping, uh, being in community with people, Lord. I pray that you'll help us to be a courageous church that seeks to love you and others whole heartedly with our new hearts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.